Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. A quick note before we get into the show. This week's show is with Cheryl Rougeau. She has a deep and abiding story to tell. A little bit scary at times and really interesting if you've never understood what RAD is or heard about what it does, what the causes are. She's going to explain all of that. Our conversation took a while. She had a lot to say, and we think it's important. So this week's episode is going to come out the first half today on Tuesday like they normally do. And in a few days, I'll make sure we get the second half pushed out. It's just too much to digest all at one time. And I want to make sure you guys can hear all the way to the end. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today's guest is a one of a kind guest who has stories on stories on stories. Cheryl, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jason. Hi, Amanda. Hi. It's great to have you here. We're excited to have you here to tell your story today. So I don't want to get all the parts of it wrong because we've talked a little bit already in the past and and I know pieces and parts of your story. If I try and summarize it, I'm going to get it wrong. And I know this. So why don't you tell the listeners just kind of maybe how your family is structured and, and how you got into foster care and adoption and, and what your entrance into that world looked like. Alrighty. Um, so my husband and I, my husband Joe um, and I, we have three grown daughters. Um, we have a 14-year-old son um, that we were done having children. Um our 14-year-old son is still at home with us, obviously, kind of going through his thing. And then we, um, that is our current biological family. Uh, we ended up adopting our two um, young girls. We took them in as foster to adopt. That was the plan from the start. We, we were not foster parents. There are several models where people help children. One of them is strictly a traditional foster parent. Traditional foster parenting is where you take care of a child while a parent is working through a struggle until they're healthy enough to be able to take the child back and care for them again. One of them is a parent who is looking to adopt a child. Oftentimes, they're only looking for children who are legally available to adopt at that moment. There is also what is called foster to adopt, which is where people will take care of a child while parents working through their problems, attempting to get back on their feet, and get to a healthy place where they can provide a safe and loving place for a child to be raised. If that's not possible, then they're willing to adopt a child and take care of them for the rest of their lives. You know, in the in the foster community regularly, these were two little girls that were um, an extended part of our family that had been in and out of the foster system for quite a while, most of their lives. Um, in 2015, it was decided that they needed to go into permanency after they had been in, with a foster family um, that was non-family for a long time. That foster family typically only did um, emergency placements. Emergency placement is exactly what it sounds like. It's designed as a place for a crisis moment. 
Oftentimes, it can last as little as one night, or sometimes it turns into something much longer term. Uh, it was supposed to be a short-term emergency placement, but they agreed to keep the girls longer and longer and longer as time went on. And you might be familiar with that situation. Oh, yeah, um, it happens. <laughs> um, so this was their longest placement they had um, as time went on. And um, so we, uh, we agreed. We were out of state. We thought that might be a really good opportunity for the kids to, to get um, a new fresh start. They were young. They were only four and five, and we were their fifth home, if you count how many times they sort of went back and forth. And that's not counting the times that they were sort of dropped off in different unknown locations. Oh, wow. So, so we just decided that we would um, say, go, go, take it on. Sure, we can do this. I have a training in pediatrics, which included um, management areas and working with safety plans. I worked side by side with DCF and different community services and helping families and homes. So I thought I had all that great training behind me. I was good for this. My husband loves children, loves working with children, had been through my pediatric career with me. We talked to our family up here, our children, grown children. And of course, thought we were doing the right thing by our son who was 10 at the time and said, hey, how do you feel about this? thinking we were doing that and putting, I think maybe putting an adult decision on a child's shoulders who now I look back at it, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, we didn't even know what we were getting into. What were we doing? Asking a 10 year old. Right. You think you're asking him, you know, let, let's bring these great little kids in this house and fix them and help them and love them. And we don't have a clue what we were getting into either at the time. So I think we did the right thing by, you know, not just having kids show up on the doorstep, but at the same time, it, looking back, it seemed moot in some ways. And that's how it kind of happened. It just, you know, we got a phone call from a family member down there that was saying, you know, they were in um, need for permanency. One of the primary goals in the child welfare system is permanency. Every child needs to know that they belong somewhere. And the ultimate goal is to find a place where a child can thrive and grow and learn in a loving environment. We made the initial DCF phone call because um, our niece called us and asked us to take the children for a while so that she could live her life when she had only, I guess, yeah, this is a little bit of a big part of the story that I kind of missed. Um, so we hadn't heard from her in a long, long time, and she'd only had the children back for about nine months when she called us. We're out of state, of course, so it's not like that's really even an option knowing that she receives all the, the subsidized housing, the benefits and all of those things, that's a legal concern, but it's also, there's also an, an ethical, moral obligation and concern for the welfare of the children if she's calling us and saying this is a problem when she's only had them for nine months. So we did talk to her. We knew her, I mean, we, we were very involved in her life, but after she had the kids, she sort of eliminated a lot of people from her life. We hadn't seen the kids in a long time. We actually offered her the option to come up here with the kids and live with us as long as she would agree to go inpatient for treatment and we would take care of the kids and then we would take care of her along with our family that we had at home still. 
She did not agree to that at first and said she didn't need help. She just wanted somebody to take the kids so she could have her own time and do what she wanted. The treatments. Are we talking mental treatment, drug and alcohol, or? Some kind of, yeah, evaluation to see what was going on. Because she'd had, obviously this was her, she'd just gotten her children back after nine months. She and BioDad both had substantial issues. So we knew that. There was constantly domestic issues on both sides. There was constantly drug and alcohol issues on both sides. So we, we agreed to do that, but she, she didn't agree to it. And then finally, she called back again and she asked again and she agreed to do it. We set a date. She didn't show up. Two days later, I, I mean, I had texted her in between to see where she was. Two days later, she called and said she just needed some more time to say goodbye to friends. And then she said she would um, show up. So this was my final cutoff for her. She didn't show up. And we had one last conversation and she said she didn't need treatment. She just needed someone to take her kids to live her life. So I said, well, then I'm really concerned. And I, I made the call to DCF because I knew her history of just dropping the kids off with anyone. I got a call back within a few hours from an investigator um, who was really wonderful. And I did say to her, I didn't want the kids removed if possible. I didn't know everything that had been occurring, unfortunately, at the time either. But um, I wanted her to have some serious in-home supports put in place to help her move forward. And they did, they tried in the summer. So that was in July of 2014. And they were removed in they were removed again in March of 2015. They tried for a long time, and they, but they called and said, we can't, we can't, there's nothing, she won't cooperate. So that's how we entered into the, the system. And they kept us up to date, up to removal. And then in removal, I did tell them, I thought she, that they should go into a, a non-biological foster home to get them completely out of the family for a while, because I thought bio mom, and dad were too able to manipulate the, the family and make it too difficult on the family down there, which is what had been happening in previous placements. Well, it's so hard when family's involved too. It, it's easy to manipulate, be taken advantage of. It's just, it it, it's a lot of stressors on the family. It is, and they were in the in the previous placements because this is our family too. I mean, in the previous placements, the the families, even in the current placement, when they were in with the non-bio family, bio family was tr our bio family was trying not uh, not just us, but the bio family down there was attempting to do respite, and DCF was asking the bio family to do visitation, supervised visitation. And when you have the biological parents that we were dealing with that were so physically abusive to even our families members, and they're being and our our family members are being asked to do visitation. What Cheryl is talking about by do visitation is oftentimes a foster parent can be responsible for standing by during a parent's visit and watching and making sure that nothing inappropriate occurs. I mean, I myself had been assaulted by our niece. This is completely unacceptable dynamics to be asked to do these types of visitations, super, you know, to be asked to supervise these visitations in front of these children. Because you're just continuing the cycle of abuse. 
So I got called by uh, my sister-in-law because she was attempting to do respite. She was asked to do supervised visits during those respite visits by the department. And here we are, states away. We drove down to this to the state where the girls were coming from to be with my sister-in-law because she said something doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. And my sister-in-law had never had children. She she's like the aunt, you know, the cool aunt that wants to do everything for the kids, but not not have her own kids. She because she wants to be able to go travel and do all those things that you know the cool people get to do that just work and have fun <laughs> and then play with kids and send them away. I'm not familiar with what it's like to be cool. <laughs> not cool, but it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I know. So um, it, they get to book those last minute trips to Scotland and all that stuff. Um, so jealous. <laughs> I know. So she, um, but she was really in tuned enough to be able to say this, something's not feeling right here and not having had kids. And so she, we, we went down and she did that. And I saw the dynamic going on between our oldest one and bio mom and she would follow her even if she went down the hall the bio mom would follow her even if she went down the hall and I would and there would be like this whispering and our older one would immediately kind of put her head down and I said this is not happening anymore so I called DCF and said this is not happening and if you think we're going to be taking them and have this continue this is not happening so with the threat of like removal of the permanent placement that stuff stopped but if you don't know if those are things that and i didn't know any of the diagnosis that she had i just knew that this was this was completely inappropriate but when you don't know those kinds of things you know my sister-in-law didn't know any of that she just knew something seemed wrong and she thought she was doing the right thing by going along with what she was being told to do for for people who don't have kids who may be in that same situation, what are the things that you, that you would suggest to look for? When I walked in, of course, you've got two children in this situation. And if it was just my sister-in-law watching, trying to watch this visit, um, you have two kids who are very wound up, of course, and one person trying to watch a mom with these two kids. My sister-in-law has no training to know to keep these kids both have to stay in the same room with mom in the same room. If you want a truly supervised visit, say you've got one child running down the hallway, mom going after that child in that room. And if, and then you've got the other little one out in the living room. So she's trying to stay here out there with the, in the living room to make sure that that kiddo is not getting in trouble. But meanwhile, mom's going down in the, bedroom following this one and I literally went down in that room and followed her and stood in the doorway just for a second and in the second that I stood in that doorway our little one was or our older one at the time was um kind of trying to read a book and bio mom was leaning over her with her face like that to her saying you really need to tell them you miss me right right you're going to really tell them you miss me so it was in that two seconds of being alone, I mean, it was seconds of being alone in a room that she was just psychologically putting this, you need to tell them you miss me. You need to tell them that. So I think what was happening is that while she was trying to do these visits and manage these two very high needs, active kids, even if she needs to go to the bathroom, 
then mom's alone with them. And mom's and coaching. Mom's coaching. Yeah. And if you don't know to look for the eyes, like I, that's not something that I would have, I mean, I know to pick up on like the eyes, but if, if I didn't just the way her, eye, like our, our older one's eyes kind of would flash, but then she was so trained, she would quickly learn and just to quickly look up and smile really, really big because there was gifts. There was always gifts being given. Ah, uh, yeah, that control through gifts that I've seen that one myself. Yeah. Which also it feeds very much into the reactive attachment disorder. And we've talked a little bit about RAD in, in, on the podcast before because we've had a couple of kids with diagnoses. Ours were pretty mild cases. But as I read through the article that you put up, your case was not what would be considered a mild case of RAD. No, our case was very, very, very severe. And it's really important to remember that reactive attachment disorder is a spectrum disorder. I'm just going to say like autism. It's not like autism as far as a disorder, but, you know, autism is on a spectrum. You have very mild cases of autism and then you have your very severe cases of autism. Uh, a lot of people want to think about reactive attachment disorder. You know, like all of those kids with RAD are the ones that are out there setting fires and, you know, killing animals and things like that, like our child was. That's not necessarily the case at all. There can be children with reactive attachment disorder that are not violent at all. They're more um, on the mild end and, and really early intervention can really switch that around. By the time that our older child came to us, she was already very, 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 very severe. I mean, her behaviors at five and six were so extreme and it was really unfortunate one of the biggest tragedies, and I know when you and I first spoke, I didn't even know this, actually. Um, I only found out very, very, very recently that um, the biggest tragedy for us, I think, that's hard to, to handle is that we didn't find out that a majority of, I don't know about a majority, because I don't even know what I don't know yet, but a lot of the behaviors that were occurring in our home were actually occurring in the previous foster home. And we only found that out about a week before we signed our termination papers as a voluntary relinquishment. And that was, we just signed those a week ago. Um, and we called the, the former foster parents to let them know out of courtesy because they did a lot of investment work into her and to both of our children. And and I know they did. It showed. They cared very, very deeply for our kids. And I felt that we owed that to them to let them know. Because there were so many things that she said that triggered thoughts in my mind over the years. And I, I knew she knew things, but she didn't know what she didn't know. They were long term. They were, they were very experienced foster parents but they didn't know what they didn't know. She kept saying, there's something wrong. There, this is more than I've ever seen in the 30 years I fostered. And she kept trying to advocate. She kept trying to say, these kids need to be separated, but then she got shut down and she kept saying, I've never seen a child who's bitten her sibling this way. And I've done this for this many years. 
30 years, that's something. We, we've only got about 10 under our belts, and, and we've thought we've seen most things at this point, but 30 years and not having seen this before, that's that's pretty incredible. She started to doubt her, her understanding of trauma, and I, I think she absolutely understood. I mean, she actually went after, after she had our children, she and her husband went and took completely different classes because they thought they had, like, missed the boat completely. And I, I talked to her and I said, you know, I have had a career in this field for, well, I've had a career in healthcare for over 20 years. Um, my specialty with children over 10, 15 of my career, 10 solidly within the field, working with different agencies. I was not prepared for what I turned into my home. I had a crisis worker who I worked with actually and um, with a number of different children who when I sat sobbing when just when we, we were going to have her actually go into residential I sat sobbing on the porch of her school this by now she was in private therapeutic school but it wasn't residential it was day to day um, because I couldn't imagine letting go of her in my home, no matter what was happening. It's just the idea as a parent of doing that. That wasn't my dream of what I was my dream. I just never imagined I could ever do anything like that. And he came and it was, I was really grateful that it was him. And um, he said to me, he said, Cheryl, I've worked with you. I know what you're capable of. I know how much you put into everything. He said, but there is no way in the world that even two professionally trained psychologists, psychiatrists with no other children, no animals or anything else in their home could do what you and Joe are trying to do right now. It's not possible. She needs a much higher level of care than what you can do. And it's not safe. So you're not doing anything wrong. It was the first time other than, I mean, our private therapists had said that. But of course, we had been moved from private therapy into community therapy, community, you know, care because we needed community services. So it was really reinforcing at that point to hear that. Unfortunately, you know, once we end up put moving into residential, that was where we really were met with the disbelief because, unfortunately, the the residential teams are not inclined to believe that once you put a child with rad in a residential treatment center they tend to do really really well because they're not with the people who are trying to nurture them and have them become part of that family environment so when you reward them with money and stick you know i don't want to say stickers because usually stickers are not enough for a rad child um but you reward them you know with money and shopping and cookies and cupcakes and sort of those sorts of things then they will do what you want them to do and they're not being expected to um, provide anything towards a family in return therefore their behaviors tend to subside some so the things that we're talking about stabbing me you know, and um, killing our animals. And they they think that, you know, I, she's doing really great volunteering at the Humane Society. So why can't she have kittens and puppies and 
hamsters and fish. It's the same as because when I go take her to church, she can do really, really well in church because everybody's handing her candy and hugs and it's, it's parent shopping kind of a thing. You know, this person's giving me more than my mom and dad are. Yeah. So you're my, you're the coolest dad today. How does that make you feel as a parent? Um, when it comes to parenting, I understand her. So it's okay. Like in that sense, it's when I try to explain it to other people who then don't understand or respect what we're asking them to do. That's where the frustration comes in. What kind of things would you ask people to do? I understand the disorder. So I understand her. So I, I never took it personally. And to this day, the fact that, you know, she write when I see her case plans where she, she writes about the kind of parents that she wants and all of that. And that she lists who she wants to be her parents. I don't take that personally in the least bit or that she says we never did anything for her. You know, she's got this list of things that she dreams her parents will do. And actually nine tenths of those were the things that we did do for her, like her Kung Fu lessons and all of that. I, I've got videos, hundreds of hours of videos of her in private therapeutic Kung, Kung Fu lessons. So, you know, those are just things that I've learned to kind of be like, she wants to go tell her next family that she never had Kung Fu lessons. And okay, I've got all, you know, 200 hours of Kung Fu lessons on my phone. That's okay. But to your point, Jason, it, you know, you, you take this, a child with an attachment disorder. And, and as our wonderful therapists that we did work with have always said, the, the role in therapy for a parent of a child with an attachment issue is for the therapist to, to really forge that attachment between the parent and the child or the caregiver and the child or whomever, you know, the primary caregiver, if it's grandparent, if it's, even if you're working as a foster parent, somehow to teach that child that not all caregivers are dangerous. It's not to build a relationship between the therapist and the child. That attachment, because the, the child is gonna be looking for anyone other than a caregiver. They don't want that, they're, they don't believe any people are safe. They have to be self-reliant. And if a therapist is, is teaching the child that the care that their therapist is the person they can trust, they're building that self-reliance more. So one is therapists that insisted on taking our child into therapy alone at seven, eight years old. Immediately things got worse the moment that she was taken, that we went from private therapy into community services and the therapist took her and back. I can say within three weeks, everything started falling apart worse, if it could be worse. I think a lot of people don't understand RAD and what it is or, or what it can be depending on where they fall on the spectrum. So what kind of things were you seeing? that number one made you realize that she needed to be in therapy and then to see her kind of get worse, you know, what are some of the examples of the things that you were seeing in your home? So initially she was easier than her sister at home, which is not always common with rat. But what she, I realize now is that because her sister, Layla, our daughter that we still have at home, who's now eight, she was so, volatile coming into our home 
and and maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, but almost more what I would expect coming from a place where she felt very connected to her prior foster parents that she, because she was being taken away from somebody she had spent so much time with as a very young child that she was like, you know, what is happening? Even though we had spent time with her and she had done fine when she was with us. Now it was like, what's happening? When Layla was having a very violent episode and I would you literally have to kind of hold her to calm her down I noticed this very odd look on our older daughter's face and they were very close in age so when I say older I mean by like 18 months and it was not a look of like fear of what we were doing to her it was more a look of satisfying pleasure that her sister was getting kind of she wasn't getting in trouble, but it's almost like that we were having to do something to her like that. And then school hit. And within two or three weeks, the police were getting called to school. She was assaulting kids at school. She had bitten her teacher in the face so badly that her teacher ended up having to get medical attention. And her teacher was a was actually a an, a foster and adoptive parent. So thank God she understood. And I've known her teacher for over 20 years. So that was helpful. We were so grateful to have such a good relationship with the school because I do believe that saved us from a lot of the heartache that a lot of ride families deal with, with false allegations. Because that was another thing that we dealt with, with her, where she wasn't initially volatile at home. Um, but the... She would go to school and say things like she had these horrible sores or rashes that I hadn't taken care of and wouldn't take care of. Now, of course, the nurse also knew me and knew that I was also a nurse. So she would call me first and say, you know, she's your, your daughter said she has this, this, and this. Just want to let you know. I said, yeah, I know. We've already contacted the doctor. She ha- she picks. It's a self-inflicted thing. So she she knew to check with me first before making that initial DCF phone call, which doesn't always happen. Um, and a lot of families are destroyed by initial sympathy that people want to have. We were really, really grateful that we were able to build such a solid connection with everybody from the behavioral planning rooms to the education. You know, the whole team we had in the school was fantastic. And I think that went both ways because we also didn't place blame when things didn't go great at school. It was not something that they were doing. We were all trying to figure this out together. I mean, she was kind of a new experience for them as well. We were trying to work towards a positive outcome together that we probably all knew wasn't going to happen in that placement. It was a matter of getting the this the district to figure out that it wasn't going to happen so that we could get her into an appropriate placement so it was really being unified and working together at the school that helped there she would um come home though and we would notice marks and bruises and things on her sister and her sister would not tell us what happened but I knew there was no way her sister could be doing these things to herself. And her sister was not getting in trouble at school. Her sister was getting in trouble at home. 
not trouble, but her sister was having the, the outburst at home because her sister went was doing phenomenal in preschool. So for her sister, it was more being in that preschool environment was very soothing for her because the chaos, it, it was a beautiful preschool. Again, I knew these people for over 20 years too and had worked with them. But I think the noise and all of the kids was soothing for her. I wasn't planning on putting her in preschool. I had that desire to kind of be the stay-at-home mom, do the bonding, nurturing, kind of get her up to speed where she had missed out. And I really quickly sensed it was it was way overstimulating for her to be home in a quiet environment. So we put her in preschool, got her there. She started doing really well. And then as soon as she started doing well, all of a sudden, six months in, everything started like going nuts with her sister, with our oldest one. Um, she started frequently getting, they had to start sending her home. Throughout the school, well before six months, they started having to send her home almost daily because of danger situations. They had to evacuate classrooms. Kids were getting hurt. And when they did that, you know, there was a suggestion made of trying to do some schoolwork with her at home. So I took a, a, a one, one time, one time, this is the one and only time I ever did this. I took a school worksheet, tried to set it down with her and she stabbed me with a pencil. Oh man. And I said, yeah, my house is not going to be a school. That's it. We've got to separate these two out. We got to figure out home, home, school, school. That's it. And then it got to the point where from there, you know, I still tried to play around in my head a little bit and say, well, just school's overwhelming for her. So I'm not going to bring school home. We're going to keep them separate. It's not really anything. It's just two separate worlds. I just kept playing that in my head that it's just that. And Layla hadn't really said anything about where these things were coming from. So I was, I know something's happening. I know her sister keeps saying she's not doing it. I know she is, but I, how do you, I would hate myself if I said she was doing it and somehow something, who knows, you know, this kid has done some crazy things like rip closet holes out at four out of anger, you know, so who knows what Layla maybe is capable of doing, even though she's calming down. Layla finally broke the first time, not about herself, but when I walked down the hall and around the corner and our older daughter had our cat in her lap and Layla was sitting next to her and I heard her say, and I'm, I'll use the name that was used in our article because I'm gonna, not going to use her name. The name that was in our article was Ella. And she said, Ella, stop. And I heard the cat screech and I walked around the corner and she was, he was in her lap. Our cat's a rescue, a rescue kitty. We don't even know how old he is or any of that, but we know he went through a lot. And um, she was squeezing his paw. She had his paw in her hand and she was squeezing it like as tight as she could. And he was, he howled, but he didn't move out of her lap. And I said to her, I said, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm not doing anything. The cat is in her lap. I'm not doing anything. Layla is. And she's squeezing his paw. And I said, no, I can see you. I can see what you're doing. 
And she said it again that she that Layla was doing it. And finally, Layla looked at her like she just kind of her her little head snapped over and looked at her. And she said, "I did not. I would never hurt Thomas." And that was kind of her breaking point of like, you know, you might hurt me, and you might do whatever you want to me, and I'll I'll lie for you, but don't you ever say I'm hurting these animals. That was kind of her first time of ever breaking open the ice. And so I still, at that point, was like, okay, they've never been taught how to do, you know, I I still am like six months into this thing. They've never been taught how to handle animals. They've never been taught how to do any of these things. So we've got to figure this out. You don't believe you're seeing what you're seeing out of a four and five, five and six, you know, year old children. It's just these little things. And they're, they're so subtly kind of creeping up on you. She was still incontinent at night. We had had some some sexual talk, so I certainly suspected the sexual abuse. And then there was more things that were coming out. She was making, um, definitely making some serious disclosures about sexual abuse. Um, that certainly wouldn't have led me to think rad because children with sexual abuse have PTSD. So we definitely knew there was that, but we didn't know that prior to her coming, it wouldn't have stopped us from taking them. She was starting to make overt sexual advances towards my son and his friends, though that became concerning. So we knew we were going to have to put some significant barriers and boundaries around that. The big one that next that happened pretty quickly that pushed me into a whole nother dimension of safety concern was after the incident in the bedroom with Cap, we decided we were immediately putting in safety boundaries around the animals as well. And so we made sure she couldn't have access to Thomas alone. Um, He was we have a family room downstairs, so we made sure he got locked downstairs at night because she wandered the house at night. All stuff I thought was normal PTSD. Um, and then she got up, and even though he was locked downstairs and we told her he needed to rest, she got up and she she pushed a uh, a chair up against the basement door to try to unlock to get to him now that I kind of was thinking this is a little more intense than what I this is this is a problem um so I caught her doing that and got her back to bed and then Joe changed the the lock into a a key lock and she got really mad the night she found out that that got changed into a key lock and she started punching the door in the middle of the night because she wanted to get to him so badly so that really started making me think something was incredibly unnerving. Um, so we were really alert to where he was all of the time. And I always made sure that if she was coming, that he could come out after she went to school and then I made sure he was put back down there. And then one day I let him out and then let her, and let her go back down well somehow he got back down in into the downstairs while she was down there and i didn't realize it and i went to go check on her she was on top of him fully on top of him on all fours and she had um 
her hands around his neck, squeezing as tight as she could. Um, her arms were blood, covered in blood, and I screamed her name, and she just looked at me and looked back down at him, and I was obviously ran to her and was got her off of him, and he was completely limp. Well, I got him back to life there, and he ran, and I was trying to get her to talk to me and understand what was happening, and she started yelling and swearing at me and got mad at me for stopping her and told me that I didn't have a right to do that, that she had the right to do to him whatever she wanted to do. And I needed to stop trying to stop her. And I also noticed that she had petechial hemorrhaging, like broken blood vessels all down her face and neck. So she told me she had held her breath so that it wouldn't hurt when he was scratching her and that I wouldn't hear her, which killed me completely because it showed me the planning that went into her act, not just that she didn't know what she was doing. Um, and I had no no idea, no thought, no way of coming up with even how to discuss it because I couldn't come up with a way to discuss it. There's no logical way to discuss that. And I made sure Thomas was okay. A number of years later, we found out that also his tail was broken and she, as we were getting ready to take her to the hospital, or when we were in the hospital the last time with her, she told us she was the one that broke his tail. We never knew that until just this last year. So he took a quite a number of brutal hits, um, but we also had a we also had chickens, and we ended up re actually rehoming those because she she live plucked one of our chickens right in front of me without me even knowing. She sat with her back to me while I was cooking on the the deck, and we have a large yard, and they the chickens would free run. She had the chicken between her legs, and she looked back and smiled and just kept sitting there. And my these were pets. So they were very friendly. They would come up on you. And um, she held her beak closed and fucked her alive while I um, was cooking on the grill and going back and forth in the house. And I didn't know until I found all the feathers and couldn't find her. And then she would, um, when I came inside, I had tears in my eyes, came inside and asked Joe if he had seen this Harmon was her name. And... Um, Ella actually just laughed and um, smiled while I, we all were looking for her. And I eventually found her and we got her to kind of come back around and she did okay. But she was always so scared when she would go outside that she would ram herself into the side of the pen because we had to keep them penned after that. So we ended up rehoming them. And, you know, there's people that will say, we, you know, you... Why would you keep your animals? Why would you do something like that? But for us, what we noticed was the more that we tried to um, either rehome them or the more that we tried to keep them away from her, her behaviors towards her sister, Layla, increased. So they became very overt instead of, as we thought, she was okay. Those first six months, it was what we were finding was that they weren't she wasn't okay. They were very hidden and subversive behaviors. So this was all within the first six months? So the the chicken, the cat, the 
kind of hidden and subversive behaviors were within the, towards her sister within the first six months. She was also defecating um, and smearing that, kind of doing those things within the first six months. Destroy. Uh, she would destroy all of her sisters or um, our son's things, kind of that stuff in the first six months. When she would get up and run around at night, the, a lot of the things that she would do would be to destroy other people's belongings in the home. Um, and it was so, the way that it was done was so, it really wasn't overt. Like I'm saying, it's so hard to kind of convince yourself that what you're seeing is really happening. Once it became overt, it was like, I, I get it. I get it now. I see, I see what's happening, but nobody else sees it. So then you're kind of in this place of a hidden dilemma because do you really tell people since it took, I, I mean, it didn't take me too, too long, but as I was trying to figure out if it took me, someone who has an education that long, to figure out what was happening. How in the heck do I tell other people? And then when I do tell people that are supposed to really understand, like, I mean, a psychiatric hospital or a residential center, and they're not getting it, then how do I get people like in a social service agency or community health, mental health agency to understand me? Because they're not getting it, you know, so you sort of go, well, am I wrong? I know I'm not wrong. I know I have, you know, I have proof. I have evidence. I have to replace a whole wood floor as evidence of what's happened. I have missing and dead animals. My house was set on fire in the middle of the night. And that was within the first, um, let's see, so that was within the first winter. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there was a lot of behavior there that was not only subversive, but it was, you know, premeditated and and I could see where people might, you know, you might be afraid that people would look at you and go, you know, okay, like you're supposed to be trained in this and know what this stuff is. Not only that, but you live in that same house every day. So I, I can't believe that you don't know this is going on. Why all of a sudden now you're saying these things. I, I could see that fear for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other pieces is that because um, and and I, I believe you and I might have discussed this a little bit in our pre-conversations. One of the things that I found so challenging, and I think it's really important for people to understand, is that especially, you know, the first place we reached out for support was, of course, to our foster friends. You know, those people who've been doing foster care for 10, 20, 15 whatever, five years, any, any amount of years, help us. And we don't know what we're doing. We didn't sign up for foster care, like for years to become part of the foster care community. We, we did this as a foster to adopt. We, we've taken, you know, we've got classes and all of this, but this is like way, something doesn't seem right here. I understand kids are going to struggle. I got all of that. Um, But we've literally taken these kids on vacations and things as part of our whole transition. We've seen some behavior stuff, but this is, this is very different. And 
you know, we got, we were in support groups with friends and other people and um, church supports and community supports. And we kept getting the whole, yeah, I know I got it. It's four to six, eight months, maybe. And you'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, we've all had holes punched in our walls. We've all been kicked and bruised and had a couple, I know, some of us have even had a few teeth knocked out. You'll, you'll, you'll get there. You'll get there. Don't worry. So of course, as our time is going on and we're trying to continue in the support group and we're hearing these stories, we're like, we're doing something wrong. We're really, really, really stinking out at this. And you're shrinking back and you're shrinking back. And and then to some extent, you know, there's maybe there's childcare provided, but you're like, uh, I hear my kid out there and what don't worry about it. Uh, don't worry about it. They're okay. They all scream and yell. You don't know what mine does. You know, you're kind of in that position of where do I go? There's nowhere fit for us where do we belong we don't really belong in the everyday foster care support groups because my child is dangerous to your child your child maybe your child doesn't have rad and my child could severely hurt yours who's already been traumatized who's already been through god knows what and I'm trying to explain this to you that something I don't know the, uh, at the time I didn't know she had rad, but I just knew that she had the ability to really hurt other kids. And these other children that we were with had already been through enough. Well, I know you, you had in our conversation before you had talked about how her behaviors had really worsened towards her, uh, towards her sister. Yeah. And, and I know you told me one particular story about, about the girls being in, in the pool with your husband. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a, um, we had a number of really severe incidents. Um, one particular one was, um, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I know how to swim. I'm not a fan of swimming. My husband is a swimmer with the kids. Thank God. Um, we have a beautiful pool and deck that was part of our whole, you know, retirement dream. And, for all the grandkids and kids. And, and it was actually a godsend in the beginning we thought to have for when the kids came, because our, it was one of the things our oldest child loved to do was swim. And our son always liked to swim. Our youngest was just kind of getting used to the water. She was very tentative around water, extremely tentative around water. Um, But we have these really great stairs that you can kind of just, ease your way into so she could she liked to stand on the stairs and my husband had gone swam down towards where the filter was just to kind of clean the filter out and stuff while the they they were swimming over on that end and he turned around and ella had layla under the water even though she had her floaty on she we bought her the little floaty thing that goes around there and goes up on the arms she had her under the water holding her down and she could not get up and she was flailing and Ella was smiling away while she was holding her down under there. And um, of course my husband is screaming and trying to, you know, yelling for her to let her up. You're trying, he's trying to get to her getting through water at a 40 foot pool is not easy. 
Um, but by the time he got there, he got her up and, and Layla was choking and crying and sobbing and she had no response. And eventually it was, I found it somewhere in one of her records that uh, she just said to, she convinced her psychiatric team that it was uh, Layla's fault because she was not as good of a swimmer and she was just trying to play a game, which was clearly obvious that, I mean, if you were witnessing the event that that was not what was occurring um, and certainly not what had happened according to Layla when she came inside and told the story um, because she had told her to leave her alone. But the other um, one that was earlier than that even was because that was actually the last summer before she went into residential. Even earlier than that was February. It was February. My daughter was graduating from boot camp in the Navy. So my husband and my son had traveled out to go to see her gra graduate from boot camp in Chicago. Um, and I was home with the girls because we never left my husband alone and my son along with the kids after we figured out the sexual um, issues, you know, to protect them yeah. from possible allegations. And there we had been outside playing the girls and I, we had been outside playing, came inside. There was a nice, we had a nice fire going. I was in the kitchen making hot chocolate. And all of a sudden I heard just a scream of Layla's name um, and Ella, it was Ella's voice just screaming Layla's name and so I ran around the corner to the living room and as I, I saw Ella run across the living room and Layla was in front of the fireplace standing in front of the fireplace and uh, which was lit hot and she, Ella had her arms out like straight like this and there was a beanbag right beside Layla and I just dove over the side of the couch and pushed my arm like this with one towards Layla, pushed her into the beanbag and held this arm out straight and Ella ran into my arm and she fell onto the rug and I hit the floor and my face hit the brick hearth of the fireplace and I'm on the, as I was on the ground Ella um said she started screaming at me and said why would you do that what why would you do that to me mommy and I just laid there still stunned and all I could say was you were going to push your sister into the fireplace I can't let you hurt her I mean I I, I was I wasn't even I, nothing I just was stunned at even the, the fact that the words were coming out of my mouth and she said to me, she goes, but I wasn't going to hurt you or do anything to you. I was just attacking Layla and you need to let me do what I want to her. And I had nothing. I just, you can't, you can't come up with anything. It's you, there's no, there's no therapeutic process, reasoning, trauma informed process to talk about that. Like in a, in a home environment you just it's one of those things that that I always talk about when I try to talk to 
social workers or therapists or, you know, when I spoke at UVM, our our university here, just to a group of social worker graduate students, I said, you know, we, we get told to go home, take our children home from crisis because there's no beds, safety proof our houses, put away all sharp objects, all of those things. I said, what people don't understand is that while we're waiting for beds, because our children do meet hospital level of care, or they meet residential level of care, typically it's usually you're waiting on a wait list for residential, which is even more significant than needing hospital level of care because it means they're not safe enough to be home long term. You think it's as easy as putting away knives, forks, whatever. I said, my child never grabbed a knife to stab. Although she probably would have if we made them readily accessible and said, here you go. She didn't start a fire with a lighter because we never had them in the house. She started a fire with a piece of a hot coal from an old fire from the night before. How do I possibly do that when we use wood to heat our house? I mean, but she didn't use a lighter. My husband knew to lock those in his craftsman tool box, and which along with all our knives, which was really easy for cooking. I bet. <laughs> Every time I need a knife, I got to go get, you know, go into the garage and the craftsman. No, I don't need a screwdriver. I need a knife for the, the pot roast. You know, it's it's not about that. That's when she's looking for a weapon. What I was finding was pieces of shale rock and sticks that she was whittling into little, you know, shanks. As she knew the term from her parents being in and out of jail. I was finding pieces, little if she could find any little piece of broken plastic that she could find from school or anywhere, little pieces of that. I would find stuffed in her mattress. Um, and I did her laundry, her bedding laundry, at least two or three times a week because she was so incontinent, even though she wore many nighttime pull-ups. I mean, it seems like you guys were on high alert all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was trying to convince people of constantly is it wasn't just about her it was our entire family there needs to be treatment for the entire family when it comes to reactive attachment disorder because it's not a disorder that affects one child it's 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 i mean as with all mental illness but it's specifically this disorder which they say tends to target the care the primary caregiver but it might personal experience of living our rad life. And I think in, in most of the people that I've spoken with, there's so many thousands of them in the support groups. It's amazing. And it, it doesn't really have to be at our level of the spectrum to have an impact on everybody. My son never had a diagnosis of PTSD before we lived rad. He had a therapist. He got diagnosed with PTSD. Once his therapist decided, you know, moved on, he chose not to move on with a new therapist. He he got his services from school. He cared very much, and he still does care very much for his older sister. He his young it's his younger sister. Yeah, the age gap, right? <laughs> I know there was like ten years between his other sister, his older sister, and then now ten years. It's it's just. Have there been any other diagnoses for the other children because of all of this? So I don't know what Layla had when she came to us, but we know certainly Layla has fetal alcohol syndrome.
Be sure and come back here in a few days and you can hear the rest of Cheryl and her husband Joe's story about their daughter and the journey it took them on. We dive a little bit deeper into what Rad really is and how it's affected their family and their marriage and how they've overcome it. And as a quick reminder, we're always looking for guests who have a story to tell. If you or someone you know would make a great fit for our show, please feel free to give us an introduction. And also don't forget, we have a Patreon account. If you'd be interested in supporting us with a little bit of money every month, that would be wonderful. You can find us at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Otherwise, just support us by sharing our episodes and talking to people about it and helping kids wherever you can. And as always, thanks for listening!